0: Hello and welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast sponsored by the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute in Washington, D.C. If you haven't already checked us out, please do so at www.tdbi. That stands for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, tdbi.org. You can also find us on Facebook, on Twitter, instagram lots of other social media platforms so uh just uh search around you'll find us you can start at tdbi.org learn about what we're up to here and one of the things we are up to is uh appointing a growing number of senior fellows these are scholars activists experts in their respective fields, and those fields are ones that intersect with the life, times, or interests of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and they are many. So you will find our uh, senior fellows specializing in a number of areas, uh, and we're going to hear from one of them today in a uh, kind of episodic series. I guess it's not really a series because we won't be releasing these podcasts contiguously, but we will on occasion uh, be releasing a podcast or two introducing you to our senior fellows. And today you're going to meet Dr. Van Gayton, someone known very well to me, the president of TDBI, going back decades. I'll talk to you about my long friendship and conversation with Dr. Gayton, but first I'll introduce him in a formal way by reading his biography, his uh, biographical sketch, uh, CV. Uh, Dr. Gayton has over 40 years of experience as a professor, pastor, and conference speaker teaching and training students and leaders all over the world. With a desire to educate and be educated, Dr. Gayton holds a number of master and uh, doctoral degrees in theology, most recently receiving a Doctor of Ministry from Reformed Theological Seminary. He has taught subjects such as philosophy of religion, the African-American religious experience, uh, Bible and race, Uh, And uh, he is presently on the Board of Advisors for Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Jacksonville, Florida, a venerable evangelical institution. He's a member of the Alliance for Black Pentecostal Scholarship and of the Society of Pentecostal Studies. Currently, Dr. Gaten is Academic Dean at the Williams Bible Institute and Seminary in Jacksonville, Florida. He hosts a weekly television show called Power Principles on Impact Network and weekly radio shows in and around Jacksonville and Lake City, Florida. Dr. Gaten was raised and ordained in the Church of God in Christ and is also consecrated a bishop in the Evangelical Episcopal Church. He has traveled extensively through Africa, Europe, Central America, and South America, speaking and teaching in leadership seminars for clergy. He traveled recently to Turkey with a Muslim delegation to participate in dialogue for understanding between the Muslim and Christian religions, something I have done as well in that country. And he and I have never talked extensively about his trips there. Uh, Maybe we'll get to that today. Bishop Gayton has worked with Third Millennium, an organization which provides a seminary in a box for pastors and church leaders in countries that lack sufficient training resources. He has lectured at several universities and churches for Black History Month, including Harvard Divinity School, Niagara University, University of Buffalo, UCLA, and the University of Pennsylvania. He served for a time on the board uh, of the Institute on Religion and Public Policy here in Washington, DC. I've also sat on that board, although our 10 years did not cross over each other in those days. Uh, And uh, he is a member of the Alliance for Black Pentecostal Scholarship. He has written, uh, recently authored a book called Good News for Racism from liberation to reconciliation. You can get that on Amazon, of course. Uh, Van has been married to his high school sweetheart, Ellen, a woman of some uh, considerable achievement in her own right. Uh, I can't believe they've been married 50 years. I knew these two as practical newlyweds. Uh, They have a daughter, Tabitha, granddaughter Jasmine. Uh, When Van is not at school, he enjoys taking walks uh, with Ellen, reading and exercising. So now you know a little about him, but you'll learn even more and especially about his interests as we have this kitchen table conversation. You're invited to listen in, listen through the windows, drop down from the eaves, wherever you are, join in the conversation with uh, the Reverend Dr. Bishop Van Gaten. Uh, here's my conversation with him. Hey, Van, welcome to the conversation. Well, thank you so much, Rob. A pleasure to be here. Now, I know you as Van. I just gave you an uh, a, a formal introduction where I read your CV, and folks know of your many accomplishments. Probably your greatest accomplishment is the amazing... Uh, universe of friends that you have uh, you keep very good company you're constantly introducing me to new and wonderful people but you and i have enjoyed a long friendship i'm i was trying to remember what year we may have met do you know what year that would have been
1: for it was it was back in the late 80s after okay. 1980 i think after 1985 somewhere around there yeah i guess maybe so. maybe you- yeah, I can't even yeah
0: probably so. I think that's yeah, right. Yeah. You were in Olean, New York right at that time, which is down on the southern tier uh, near, oh. uh, well, it's western New York State, for those of you who are not familiar uh, with... Uh, the expansive state of New York, a lot of people out West, I know, think of New York as crammed somewhere between the Hudson River and the Atlantic Ocean, <laughs> but Right. there's a lot more of New York <laughs> State, and you were in a kind
1: of small city, semi-rural area right on the Pennsylvania well, border. let's put it this way. My grandmother owned a 360-acre dairy farm, so I was oh, out in on. that vicinity. Yes, she did
0: why did i never know that in those
1: days (laughs) i I don't tell that many people but (laughs) wow yes uh, that's a lot that's the size of some towns right and to this day i don't like farms (laughs) oh of course you had to work the farm yes she made us come out every year all the kids grandkids to come out and help with the bring in that harvest uh pick all the crops uh be there when she killed the chickens and the hogs and everything else oh my goodness it was my grandmother she you know at 83 years old my grandmother was still chopping wood with her own axe at 83. Oh oh my goodness yeah grandma ross grandma ross you come from some stock oh boy she was awesome she was awesome No wonder you
0: you do so well with the agrarian texts in Scripture (laughs) when you you treat them. You are always very convincing, but let's talk about that. Let's talk about your personal genesis.
1: Uh, You weren't born a bishop. No, I was born a baby. (laughs) uh, Something uh, we
0: share in common.
1: Yes, yes, and yet I'll have to say this because, uh, you know, the supernatural runs th- not only through the the Bible, but it's run through my life uh, in an amazing way to me from the Lord. At my birth, when my mother had me baptized, uh, the pastor gave a prophetic word that I would preach and see the world. Mm. Well, and... So- and- And let's talk a little bit about that because it
0: speaks to the spiritual uh, environment you came out of, the cultural, uh, and certainly religious. And some people will hear those words and they'll say, what is he talking about, prophetic word? And Mm -hmm. that goes right to your spiritual origins in the Pentecostal church. Can you define that for those who are listening that may not be familiar with it?
1: Well, uh, you know, I come from a a tradition that believes that from Genesis to Revelation, it's all supernatural because God is not a natural being. He's a supernatural being, a transcendent God uh, of the Spirit. He's of the Spirit and that he sent his Holy Spirit in the book of Acts to uh, empower his church to finish what Christ has started at Calvary. And when you read the book of Acts, uh, you see that people were filled with his spirit so they could act Christ-like and accomplish Christ's things. And so that was an empowering of how to live and what to do. So I was born in the church of God in Christ. My mother was the church piano player. And therefore, the Pentecostal setting was not only the supernatural beyond reasoning, beyond the physical body to the realm of God, uh, but also the gifts of the Spirit were involved. And so that's where the prophetic came is that God knows the end from the beginning. He lives in the eternal now and that he by his Spirit can speak to his people and bring us apprised of what's going on in, in the present and what will be happening in the future so my pastor, after he anointed me and put me in water my first bathing suit and uh then said that i would be traveling the world uh and at the, at a, by the way at a time and the whole time i was growing up my mother called me reverend i mean i'd be out in the streets hmm. uh with with the gangs and she'd ride by and blow the horn and say hello reverend and all the young guys would wonder why does your mother call you reverend i said uh, she's flipping out you know she's you know she's pentecostal and. But inside, uh, uh, when I finally gave my heart to the Lord, he spoke to me the very things that he spoke to, about me to that pastor. And as you know, you and I both have had the a, a privilege of traveling the gl- globe for his glory. Mm-hmm. And and let's talk about some of those
0: distinctives uh, just a little bit more if we can. For example, when you say the Church of God in Christ it has yes. more than just simply a Pentecostal distinctive in terms of theologically, and 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 that you know I'm going to talk to the to our family here, our podcast family. I know we got a lot of cradle Episcopalians, we've got a lot of cradle Presbyterians, we've got others who may not even be familiar with the forms of baptism, for example, that are used in Pentecostal churches. And you mm. said you know, he put you, your, your pastor put you in water, your first bathing suit, some will only associate baptism with paedo-baptism or baptism of infants. But yes. in your case, you were submerged at what age?
1: Well, uh, I'll make a distinction. I was, uh, when I was still not even speaking yet as a baby, I was what he called in our Pentecostal setting, I was dedicated to the Lord. Uh, by my pastor, and they simply anointed you with oil uh, and poured a little water on you. I was not baptized, baptizo, the Greek word. I was not immersed in water until I was 21 years old.
0: Mm, mm, okay. Yeah, All so right, that interesting.
1: Di- that distinction, yes, yes. Yeah, and, yeah, okay. <clears throat> and, and when we say
0: dedicated as an infant, yes. I'm familiar with that because... Uh, that was the practice of the church you know, I kept company with until I started uh, getting into the Anglican fold, uh, right. where there are more infant baptisms than there are uh, adolescent or adult baptisms. Yes. But in any case, um, that dedication, there's no water involved in that uh, no. in Church of God in Christ. That's a lifting no. up, generally, of the child in prayer yes. and prayer and so forth.
1: Well, if you've seen uh, The Lion King... Uh, Mufasa lifts up the little guy. Oh, that's right! <laughs> and it's the same idea. <laughs> that's same.
0: right. Yeah, that's same, a good
1: picture. Um, there of what you go. In a baby and, dedication, right? And many of the African traditions, that is still what they did: is they lifted up the child to the heavens. And uh it wasn't so much water at that time as it was, not within the Pentecostal circle, anyhow. It was just a lifting as saying, "Lord, I give back to you what you've given to me."
0: Mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah, and since you uh, and, and since you mentioned the African connection, of course, the Church of God in Christ, I think is still the largest, certainly one of the oldest African American denominations.
1: Right. It is the largest Pentecostal denomination uh, in the world, in in the United States, I should say, and the Assemblies of God, which is the white version, is (laughs) in the world. (laughs) And so from William Seymour on Azusa Street, and then he had a conversation with uh, Charles Mason, the founder of the Church of God in Christ. And uh, then it was birthed right after that, and uh, it has grown to where it is the largest Pentecostal uh, denomination in the United States. Which is saying a lot,
0: because Pentecostalism is the fastest-growing and largest
1: sector of evangelicalism worldwide. Oh yes, yes. I mean, right now, the <clears throat> the uh, uh, uh where what we have to be awakened to is that we've acted as if the Western civilization and the Western Church from Constantine is like the center of Christianity, and in many ways it has been, but there's always, from the book of Acts, there's always been a move of God that went uh, south to Africa, east to Asia, as well as west to Europe, and now in the southern hemisphere, I mean, there is such an explosion of the move of God, and it's among Pentecostal denominations, uh, that because the the south the southern hemisphere is very uh, animistic they believe in the supernatural we have we've always believed that uh, the Africans believed even if they weren't Christians they believed in what's called a a bureaucratic monotheism that you had to go to a lesser God in rank to get to the higher God so to receive God the Father through God the Son makes sense to them it makes sense to them and uh but that's because they walk within that tradition anyhow and they believe in the supernatural that there's the spirit world is more real than the natural world and certainly the church of god in christ i was raised in that kind of setting and uh well there's so many rabbits
0: trails, I could take you down here and and want to, uh, and and I'll do so with some caution because I don't want to get off entirely off the uh, biographical dimension of this, which I think is terribly important. But I know from my work as an advisor to the World Evangelical Alliance that globally evangelicalism, or what we sometimes call Bible-believing Christianity, Uh uh, is overwhelmingly a church of color now. It is non-white. And in fact, the white church is the minority and significant minority. And I know that gets into a very big part of of your life and work here. Um, And and, and we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. But here you are, you're growing up black in... Uh, I, what was Olean back, or that that region of New York State back then? Was it predominantly white? Catholic, Catholic, white, white Catholic. Okay. Oh, yeah. oh you got Saint Bonaventure University yes. there, and and then you uh, have churches
1: like Saint Mary's and Saint Joseph's, and there were about five major Catholic. Um, you know, churches there in Olean, and everybody had fish fries on Friday night, which I didn't go to because I'm allergic to fish, but nevertheless, that was the Catholic tradition. And uh, in fact, in the summer times, uh, in junior high, I worked at a Catholic uh, church to make some money uh, so I could buy some nicer clothes. So, Mm. um, yeah. Oh, and you
0: used to, I think, did did you tell me you used to buy
1: Uh, Yes. Your clothes from a Jewish clothier in downtown Olean. Yep, in Steinharts. I grew up on uh, welfare with my mother, and yet I was in the more advanced classes, and all the kids were wealthy and lived in what was called Seneca Hikes of Olean, New York, and that was like the neighborhood. But I grew up across the tracks, which was the other side, and so I noticed that they dressed so well, so I went to a Jewish clothing store, and I talked to Mr. Steinhardt, and I was working at the Beef and Barrel at that time, working dishes in the evening. Oh, I remember the Beef and Barrel. Yes, I told Mr. Steinhardt if he gave me credit so I could buy some nice clothes, I would always pay my bill. And he looked at me and says, Young man, I'm going to give you a chance. And I bought clothes even after I became a pastor and was in Buffalo. I would order my suits from Mr. Steinhardt, and just have him shipped to me, because he uh, we've had a relationship since I was a young teenager,
0: so podcast friends, you just heard uh, Bishop Gaten referred to the magic city of Buffalo, where <laughs> uh, you know, for him and for me, uh, Buffalo is the reference point because, of course, it was the big, burgeoning town in those Ooh. days, the big steel city. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, Van, but uh, when we wanted culture, we went north to Toronto. Yes. Uh, When we wanted breathing room, we went south to the southern tier. (laughs) Uh, But Buffalo was the city. Yes. It was the, the gravitational urban gravitational pull. Uh, yes. Was Buffalo, New York, so that's why we're talking about Western New York and all the reference points there. And I'll be interested to hear from other Western New Yorkers who are listening into this podcast. <laughs> so, so tell tell us a little bit more about your experience growing up in that environment. Uh, well, growing in up only. black in oh. in the Niagara Frontier of new york what what what
1: was that part of the experience okay well it was rather paradoxical rob in that there were there were some good times as well as some bad times and more good times than bad times i have to say that olean was a very unique experience that we uh, for the most part we got along we all got along but there's some kind of experiences that i had that I, as I look back now, I understand more fully like I remember in third grade, being the only black in in my grade, that the uh, art teacher told us to draw a picture of ourselves and to color in color in the picture. Uh, so it looks like you. I looked around at everybody and nobody was coloring in because everybody was white and the paper was white. And I thought, Oh, my, uh, what should I do here? It was an awkward moment for me Mm -hmm. and uh so now on the other side of the coin uh because I grew up in Olean I grew up in a uh, there were very few there was less than a thousand blacks in the city Mm -hmm. uh, of 16,000 uh living in the whole city and in the surrounding areas you had cities like little Portville and Allegheny and places like that um so but we basically got along pretty well in fact I met my wife uh, she was raised Catholic in Olean, St. Mary's, and uh, in our sophomore, our junior year, I'm sorry, she was transferred from Archbishop Walsh, which was a Catholic high school, to Olean Public Schools, and uh, where I was. And so we met at the age of 16 in Olean Senior High School. And, and, and as written now, because I was Pentecostal, Back then the other downside was that <clears throat> because it was all Catholic, they looked on the Pentecostals at a weird little motley crew that needed an education. And uh, you know, they used to sneak and look in the windows at people dancing and shouting and loud music and all of that and It was so embarrassing to me as a child because I didn't want them to think. Wait a minute, I don't. I don't do any of those things. My mother makes me go there, (laughs) and uh, so it it caused a little shame to me uh, from peer pressure. Mm,
0: mm, mm, So, mm, mm, yeah. So in some ways, you were twice the minority. Yes, you were racial minority. You were religious religious minority. Exactly. But you, you meet Ellen. You're I in an Ellen. interracial dating and eventual
1: <clears throat> uh, dating relationship and eventual marriage. Does
0: that become a problem in Olean in any
1: way? Well, it, uh, yes and no. Uh, first of all, I met Ellen in my junior in my trigonometry class, mm. and then mm. I found out she was in my chemistry class, and then, and uh, so the next thing you know, I just pushed and pushed and pushed until she said yes. But um, her parents and I, uh, let's put it this way, they, she, Ellen was told, if you continue to see him, uh, we will never speak to you again. So uh, by the time we graduated from high school, my, her parents told her that uh, uh, they literally cut her off. And so my wife didn't have any relationship with her parents for five years. Wow. And uh, it, was, it took five years finally. And Jet, uh, Tabitha was born, my little girl. And that kind of bridged the gap. Tabitha bridged mm-hmm. the gap and we began. Mm-hmm. Now, Ellen went home to her parents to be reunited. I did not go to her parents' home until 10 years after we were married. So she went five uh-huh. years with, without me. And in Olean, the word was, uh, do not allow your white daughters to date black guys because you'll end up like Van and Ellen. They'll end up married, so keep them away from them. So... Uh-huh. That was the rest of the story
0: that's so incomprehensible to me because knowing you and Ellen as I do, as Cheryl and I do, uh, knowing your daughter, uh, I do not know your granddaughter, I, I no. feel badly about that. We've been <laughs> separated by miles, uh, yeah, and and by a few years where we had a little hiatus right. and I was off, uh in a different part of the Milky Way galaxy that I'm, I regret. And it distanced <laughs> me from you and, and from others, which which I'm yeah. impoverished for. But in any case, we're back and reunited. And knowing the two of you, I think of yes. you both as a union. You have improved humanity. <laughs> so to uh-huh. me, the idea that this could be cast as detrimental is yeah. just mind-boggling. But. Yeah. At some point, you return to the faith that you had at least an ambivalent relationship with. Yes, yes. In those uh, years. How does that happen?
1: Well, I, like I told you, uh, my mother made me go to church, and back in those years, church lasted like five hours. So I was dying. I've been to and some so, of those services. Uh, so, are, yeah, That's a unique test <laughs> of one's commitment to Christianity. <laughs> that's the truth. So at 16 years old, I told my mother, I said, listen, Ma, um, I'm not going anymore. You can't whoop me. I'm too big for you to handle. Mm-hmm. So, um, And my mother simply looked at me. And she said, the Lord spoke to me about you when you were a child. You're going to mm-hmm. be a preacher. You're going to see the world and you will be back. And I told my mother, do not hold your breath. I'm not Mm -hmm. coming back. But by the time I turned 21 years old, in Olean, New York, Rob, there is a place called Marcus Park. It's on 15th Street in Washington. And I went to a softball game, an adult softball game this day, tight jeans on tank top, uh, you know working out so you know I have m- muscles and everything and you know a little t- supposed to be a little tough guy mm-hmm. and uh, but also on drugs, smoking mm-hmm. marijuana, mm-hmm. etc. So here's here's the scenario. I'm at the softball game. I'm cussing out the umpires. I'm using expletives that uh, I cannot repeat today. And I'm standing there with a cool cigarette in one hand and a Miller's beer in the other hand, and two J's of marijuana in my pocket. And right in that setting, the spirit of God came over me and the Lord said to me, I have come out from among them and be separate for I've called you to myself and you shall preach my gospel to the world. And that was a sacrosanct moment. I walked away from that and people were yelling like, hey, Van, where are you going? I couldn't even look back. It was such a holy, awesome experience that I walked out of that softball game back to my house. And the next night I went to that little Pentecostal church that I've been raised in. (laughs) And when I opened up the door, my mother said, from the piano microphone, she said, I told you you'd be back. (laughs) And I committed my heart to the Lord at 21 years old, August 19th, 1973. But it was a supernatural experience because I tell people, God came for me. That's the wonderful thing about salvation. God came for me at Marcus Park because he loved me. Mm
0: Mm-hmm yeah Bonhoeffer called Jesus the one for others, yes, he told us so himself he said uh, he came to seek and to save those who were lost the the, yes. the ones who had gone astray uh and 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 you were such as and now you're back in the church and i've I've lost yes.
1: I've lost track of where you are are you and Alan married at this point? yeah, yeah, well, we got yeah. married. We got married right out, we went, when we graduated from high school in 1960, 70, 1970. We went, went off separate ways to colleges and came home Christmas break. We got married Christmas break in 1970, still 70. So we graduated in, in June of 70, went to college, came home Christmas break. December 20th, we got married in 1970, and now it's been over, it's almost 51 years. Yeah, that's
0: crazy. But you were like Cheryl and me. We were married right out of high school. Right. At eighteen. And uh that uh, you guys were a little older than that. Were you uh, what were you? No, Nineteen, twenty? No, no, eighteen. You were eighteen? Okay. We're 18. No wonder we yeah. get along. No wonder we get along. We we think alike, but and oh, we act yeah. like uh and and so now you're back in the church.
1: Yes. And
0: w- when does I mean, the call of ministry and the call to faith yeah. were one and the same for you. It sounds, but yes. So now you start. What's the path to ministry to becoming a minister?
1: Okay. Well, uh, you know the 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 tradition of the Church of God in Christ is that they've not been a group known for high academics, uh, but they felt like there was this idea that. Um, if you were a male and you testified very strongly, that's probably the call that you've got an urge, an itch to preach, and that's God's calling. But mine was uh, distinct and, and, and distinct from my initial conversion. The Lord visited me again. I went through a season where every night when I laid in bed from like 1974 on, 74, yeah, 74, 75, Every time I closed my eyes, Rob, I saw, I had visions of thousands of people and I was preaching to them and the Lord said, I've called you, I've called you. I could see multitudes and the Lord saying, I called you and I just couldn't do anything else. I knew he was telling me, this is what I want you to do. So I was convinced and I'm still convinced.
0: And so what happens? Uh... You know, I I know, of course, in our tradition, again, for those who may be unfamiliar, you know, there's a recognition of... By my pastor. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And and I don't know how the Church of God in Christ does it. Sometimes there's a local church ordination, sometimes a denominational ordination. How does that unfold for you? When do you become, for lack of a better term... Uh, validated minister or professional clergy?
1: Well, it starts out initially uh, with just the pastor uh, providing opportunities for all those who feel the call to preach to every now and then speak for two or three minutes from the pulpit. And that was, I guess, his way of discerning whether the call was really there or not. And within a year, they decided I was, and uh, I am li- I'm I'm. still licensed in, and ordained in the Church of God in Christ. They gave me credentials. The state bishop uh, came down to my little church in Ann, and they gave me credentials. And, and you get installed in the ministry, or hands laid on you, a charge from the Word of God and away you go into the ministry with the blessing of, this, of your jurisdictional bishop and your local pastors and elders bearing witness that you are definitely called.
0: So now I hear again all my Episcopal friends kind of pausing a minute and saying, well, wait a minute, w- w- when did you go to seminary? When did you graduate with your Master's of Divinity? Uh, Yeah, well... When did you go through internship process? Right, right. that doesn't apply here. This is a different uh, polity.
1: Yeah. A a different practice. Right. And it's a wonderful part of my story of how uh, I came to... You know, in I guess it was in 1976 or so. I was invited to leave um, Olean, and they wanted me to preach in this little Church of God in Christ in... Um, New Jersey, Palmyra, New Jersey. So I came to Buffalo, got got on a plane, and uh, another white gentleman sat down next to me and we introduced ourselves to each other. And he said to me, what what are you going to do? Now, I'm a a, a minister in the Church of God in Christ. And so I said, I'm going to preach a revival at a church in Palmyra. He says, oh, you're going to preach? He says, what are you going to preach on? So I got out my little notebook and I showed him the four or five sermons I was going to speak on and how I had fasted and prayed and worked out these sermons. But but Rob, that gentleman, all of a sudden he put his finger on part of my message and he started elaborating, but I did not understand a word he was saying. I mean, he was, he had what we call sespetence. Pedalian speech, he had $50 words and he was talking about hmm. my sermon and I didn't know what he was saying. And uh, finally I said to him, John, John, uh, uh, can I ask you a question? Who are you, you know? And he says, well, I'm John. I says, no, no, okay, what are you? He said, oh, I'm a Jesuit priest, hmm. a Jesuit priest. Hmm. And I, when I got to Jersey, I looked it up and I thought, oh, one of the most educated religious people on the planet. And Probably thought, a PhD. Yeah, and you know what? From that moment on, I was convinced that, uh, that it wasn't enough to be uh, believe in the gifts of the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit. One must study and be learned that academically anointed is the right calling of God. So mm. it, it was then I came back to Olean. I was seeking the Lord. I went on a 21-day fast, and the Lord told me to pursue scholarship which meant I had to go read books. I didn't read anything after that. Every book I read was written by a Christian with a Ph.D., which meant my vocabulary had to grow. And uh, then I ended up going to uh, Bible college, seminary, and then ultimately right here in Jacksonville, Florida. I went to Reform Theological Seminary and teach at Gordon-Conwell as well, right here in Jacksonville.
0: Which uh, I know... Uh, is has been a lifelong process for you as it has been for me I was 55 when I enrolled in my doctoral uh, program Uh, uh, you you achieved a series of doctorates in the time that I was only able to pull off one but uh, (laughs) uh, uh, now you know again uh thinking about those folks hanging around the kitchen window here listening in and yeah. dropping down from the eaves right they may assume uh you uh, folks may assume this is a welcome development you know within a church community the more education the better not necessarily so at least not in my experience in the pentecostal world in my I don't know what it was like in yours, and, and I'm kind of asking uh, you to elaborate on yes, it. But for yes. me, we referred to seminaries, which are graduate schools of theology and religion, right, uh, as cemeteries. That's right. Because correct. scholarship was was seen as a threat to faith.
1: Right. Was that true for you? Well, in in my church of God in Christ, back in those days my pastor taught that the mind was the enemy of God. And that when he found out that I was studying, his his words were woe unto him that goes to Egypt uh, for help. And because they thought mm-hmm. the mind was the enemy of God, you gotta be led only by his spirit. And uh, so so this this severed me from a lot of friends. In fact, Rob, one time, uh, my, my jurisdictional bishop, he, he just would badmouth me all the time. But one time in Buffalo, he had, it was during the celebration of Black History Month, he was having the mayor of the city, uh, the head of the university president, and, and the Buffalo uh, Orchestra Philharmonic coming to his church. They decided they were just going to converge on his church to celebrate Black History Month this one particular Sunday. And he had his secretary call me and say, said, say to me the bishop wants to know if you would speak this particular Sunday and I couldn't even believe it because he's he was so against me getting education and going to school he was so against that but all of a sudden now he wants me to preach well I found out why because all of his guests that Sunday were white and as we know educated and he was not comfortable w- with them. He was intimidated by them. And so because I had gone to school, he asked me if I would preach. and And thank God they uh, you know they stood up uh, uh, halfway through my message, they all stood up and stayed up until I finished my message. And then the state bishop finally said to, uh, the congregation. He says, oh, uh, I hope you enjoyed this young man. And they, you know, of course, they clapped and everything. He says, you know, this is, by the way, this is my son in the gospel, and I've uh, mentored him. And <laughs> I said there would chuckle in my heart, but I thought, hey, mm-hmm. if this is how I can be a blessing to my own people, I'm going to do it. Well,
0: and indeed, you have been, and this gets into the complicated side of all churches, but in particular, you know, the wing of the Christian family that you and I both come from, which is right. the Pentecostal, evangelical, uh, more theologically conservative, culturally conservative wing of the church. Uh-huh. And uh, there is a long history of anti-intellectualism. Yes. Uh, and and I've wondered from time to time, and this goes to the story you just told us, and, you know, I don't want you to, you know, we're not here to tell stories out of school or be, you know, uh, overly critical of our own, but uh, I have wondered over time because uh, evangelicalism in general, but certainly our branches, both black and white, uh, came out of the social underclass, uh, Mm -hmm. working class people. If you go back 100, 200 years, uh, you know, these were, uh, you know, folks who did not pursue higher levels of education. Some of them had no schooling at all. Correct. They worked with their hands. Uh, They were simple people, uh, you know, uh, you described your church, or I think you lived on the other side of the tracks in Olean. The church right. was often on the other side of the tracks. It was usually a very humble, sometimes ramshackle building. Oh, uh, yes, certainly didn't boast a big budget. Uh, no. In you know many cases, the pastor was bivocational, had to hold a, a laboring job in order to pay for the family. Uh, and preached, you know, just as every other minister does, on and on it goes. In other words, we were not the prestigious church in town, uh, no. and not the most educated clergy mm. around, if we were educated at all. So, I- I'm wondering, you know, now you're setting us up here, because y- y- you, are, you are, in many ways, um, you're challenging... The, the very ethos, the very culture of the Church in which you are being formed and that you now serve as a member of the clergy, how does that how does that shape the rest of your life? I mean, I, I, I know you as a kind of iconoclast, and yet at the same time, I also know you as an individual and as a, a member of the clergy who respects tradition. How, how do you get that balance? right yeah.
1: well <clears throat> you know when i was a prison chaplain for the federal bureau of prisons um uh to make oh a yeah there was sh- that too
0: i didn't yeah, mention that was, in your yeah. formal
1: bio. Federal, federal bureau of prisons in bradford fci mckean bradford pennsylvania but as a result being the protestant chaplain i had men inmates from all different denominations that would come for your chapel service and i thought well how do i do this i mean i'm pentecostal and some of these are presbyterians and and catholic and baptists and how do we do this and it was during that period of time the lord spoke to me a, uh, about convergence theology and that's what i've embraced since then uh because convergence theology is about i look back in scripture at israel coming out of egypt and in as they developed the uh, tabernacle of of Moses, uh, I, the Lord showed me how they were sacramental in the sense that the high priests wore robes and vestments, and they had uh, uh, festivals and, uh, you know, a liturgical calendar. They were very, very uh, much sacramental in their theology. At the same time, they were evangelical because uh, out of them, all the nations of the earth were to be blessed. So the priests were teaching priests. They had a Authority from uh, the Torah and and then at the same time they were also Pentecostal they believed in signs and wonders and miracles and shouting and in that the Lord showed me that if you recognize the sacramental evangelical and charismatic Pentecostal streams it, that a threefold cord is not easily broken or bent or cut and that when you're stronger when you have all three wound together than any separate one by themselves so you become very eclectic in your nature i mean um i've learned how to experience god wherever i am whatever liturgy that particular ch- church may have but my theological bent towards uh, convergence theology Means that I've learned how to swim in other waters and learned how to draw from each stream of Christianity that was uh, that I needed in my own spiritual diet, so that I could be a part of the greater river of God that flows from the three streams. And that's been my emphasis. That's been my salvation. That's been my source of excitement. And yes, it takes a little. There's a little more challenge because there's a tension to that. But there's an excitement and a reward that comes with that as well.
0: And I've seen you in those various settings. I've seen you in what we sometimes refer to as low church, yes. which is spontaneous, sometimes looks disorderly. It really isn't. Uh, every church no. has a certain liturgy to it. Rest it correct. may be informal. It, it may be sometimes ad hoc, but it, f- but it follows a basic outline.
1: Uh, Absolutely.
0: Then you have kind of the middle, the middle church, uh, and then high church. And I've seen you uh, in each of those settings. In what we sometimes call low church, which is more spontaneous, uh, sometimes looks disorderly, but it's not. Uh, it's uh, there's a form, there's a shape to the mm-hmm. worship service, uh, a kind of outline that happens. Uh, mm-hmm. Then there's the middle church that kind of mixes uh, that kind of ad hoc, uh, you know, uh, casual form with, with elements of liturgy or structure. And then you have high church, which is highly structured uh, and right. follows virtually the same pattern each time. And I've seen you in each of those settings, and you do... Remarkably well, and, and it makes me think. You know, there's a reason why senior fellows at the Bonhoeffer Institute are chosen for many reasons. One of them is the kind of connection to the Bonhoeffer ethos, and that describes him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very comfortable worshiping at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, which would have been a, a, a you know, very effervescent, energetic, in some way spontaneous form yes. of worship. Uh, and then uh, he was just as comfortable in his Lutheran, uh, German Lutheran Church. Actually, over time he became less comfortable with that, more com- comfortable with the spontaneity. Uh, yeah. But, he, but he, he fit in well with both appreciating the strengths and weaknesses of both, yes. uh, as I know has been true for you. So, so you go on, you, you, you have a very full life for decades, uh, as a minister, uh, you are a pastor. In those years, you you lecture on theology, you consult with church bodies, you serve on uh, the boards of directors for numerous organizations, uh, and now I find I rediscover you in Jacksonville, Florida. Right with with a with a near singular passion and an extremely important one and that Mm -hmm. is the systemic racial bias racism uh, that is present in the church and woven throughout church history Mm -hmm. going back to its very beginnings but most particularly as it is manifest here in the united states can you use these last several minutes we have together to talk to us about that passion and how you are addressing it?
1: Yes. Well, I ran into it, first of all, Rob, back in, uh, from only in New York, there was a little town called Elmira New York, which you would be familiar with. Sure. Yeah. And I was a part of an organization called Hebron. And uh, I was their most popular speaker. I was more sp- popular than the president but uh, i was called into a meeting one time by the elders of hebron and they set this conference and let everyone know in this conference by the way i'm the only black in the whole conference get up and uh tell them that the lord is blessing you but he's blessing you out of repentance for having a mixed marriage not because you are in a mixed marriage so that was my first real slap in the face amongst the people of God. Now let's where, let's get this straight here.
0: It, it, <laughs> they are referring to your marriage, marriage. to yes. Ellen, a yes. white woman. Yes. And, and and narrate that for us again. Well, if, if they you will. are
1: they are saying that their see their dilemma was I was getting too many invitations from all the young pastors in this movement and yet everywhere I went I took Ellen with me and they felt that uh, God does not like tribes to mix and they took the tribes not mixing to the ethnic groups not mixing that it was a sin for a black man to be married to a white woman. And as a result, if you if he's so blessed and so being used, then you gotta tell these people that what you did is you repented for marrying the white girl and God forgave you and is now blessing you, which did not happen in my life. I've never had to apologize to God for marrying Ellen. And uh, so I left the whole thing, but I left with a broken heart and I realized that theologically there was nothing there that I could really delve into any deep studies, research about this issue. Hence, I wrote my dissertation on this years later and looked in the scripture. My daughter even, uh, you know, being a child of mixed marriage, she says, Dad, what am I and, and how should I feel? And so I was able to show her from scripture all the mixed marriages that God ordained and how the children were blessed and you know and all of that so i had to look in and research the theology then i find out that you know in europe to america a whole ethos has developed where um instead of the bottom line is what has happened in europe and america is that uh many whites from europe and america have tried to replace the nation of israel in their understanding of God's salvation and they see themselves as the Supremes the people on top they've just they've debunked uh, Israel and placed themselves in place of Israel and hence you have supremacy so this chain of being this hierarchy of being they decided through the Enlightenment and other places that. Uh, blacks are at the bottom of the human scale and the whites are at the top of the human scale. And hence you have the superior and the inferiors dwelling together. And we even have what's called a polygenesis that, uh, that uh, blacks came from uh, Cain and not from the holy line of Seth. And uh, all of these, uh, they eisegete, they read into the word their own prejudice and the gospel has become diluted even in America so the black church in America is a resistance movement. It's a movement born out of resisting the oppression that comes from a group of Europeans that are saying that they are better than and they are paternalistic. And our calling of God is to watch over you because you're less learned, less uh, capable, and you're going to need our guidance and our help. And therefore, you're subject to us by the will of God. And so the black church realizes the understanding and right now in the earth we have several black scholars um, who are refuting that lie, refuting that lie, the, the hypocrisy of the, the, the error of it and coming out with the truth. But my goal my goal is refute the lie, but I still want to talk about reconciliation. God wants us to all get along, to be in harmony with one another, for He is our Heavenly Father and we are all His children. So I believe that we're all, all children of God, by the, some by the theology of creation, And then we're children of God, some by the theology of redemption so if you're in love with jesus and i'm in love with jesus and we're brothers and sisters through the theology of redemption but any man any woman any boy and girl anywhere on the planet it is the same god who made us all and we are no better than each other we are all the imago dei made in his image the image bearers of god and that it is a a, a real disdain to american uh, that the original sin of america is racism that there was the boat, the Mayflower, uh, it came over in, in in 1620. But in 1619, the the boat called the White Lion brought the first group of enslaved Africans to America. So I am in, of African descent, and we practice what is called an Afrocentric hermeneutic. Uh, Even the word redemption, you know, the classic uh, Reformation view is that redemption means deliverance from sin, guilt, and shame, which is true, but that's not the total definition. If we look back to Hebrew, we would see that we're deliverance from sin, guilt, and shame, but also from the sin of human imposed oppression, which makes that liberation theology that we see when Israel came out of Egypt, that God set them free so that they could worship him and live freely to serve him so there's this big battle going on in america right now uh and the only answer to that i believe is through the church and it's the black and the white church coming together in harmony reconciliation around the truth and what we're asking as black christians in america we just want acknowledge the truth of the past and let's get that straight so we can go on and have a bright future together but the church is the panacea uh for what we're facing but we've got to get our act together so we can be on the avant-garde of what god wants to have happen in this nation otherwise some other some others will fill the vacuum and it won't be to god's glory wow
0: As we say in our tradition, that will preach, my brother. (laughs) And it must preach. Uh, Now, you know, there are some who might say, well, of course. I mean, you know, God wants us all to be together, and, you know, there's no difference. God loves a black person as much as a white person. So what's the big deal? Uh, Right. What's the problem here? We know that, uh, and yet I can recall in a number of sermons alluding to the work of historian uh, Henry Wiencheck, who looked at uh, George Washington in particular, but the founders in general, and their Mm. ownership of slaves and their violation of those individuals in that relationship in so many ways, whether it was simply by deprivation, George Washington gave out one pair of clothes and one, uh, uh, one uh, blanket for warmth uh, to each of his enslaved persons uh, at Mount Vernon, one per year uh, and often not that. So mm. they were deprived of even the most basic human comforts, not to mention dignity and the supreme god given right to freedom on and on it goes um, and i would sometimes allude to this as precisely what you just named it as the the original sin or uh, you know the great human compromise at the beginning of of the republic's life mm-hmm. and there on more than one occasion i'd be met by somebody in the church lobby afterwards who would say I, I am really disgusted by what you did in there. You insulted our founders, uh, or mm-hmm. I was outraged. I didn't come here to hear that that sermon. You know, that's black nationalist stuff. That's, you know, Black yeah. Panther stuff. That's uh, socialist stuff. I'm talking about white evangelical Bible-believing, often Pentecostal or what we sometimes term charismatic churches. Pastors would sometimes say, "Next time you come, don't mention that, because that gets people stirred up, or it's a problem." Mm-hmm. What, what What is that all about, Van? What Why yeah. can't we face <clears throat> our own? Now, this is unfair for me to ask you, a, a, a black man, about the yeah. white church problem. But
1: maybe you see something we can't even see. Mm-hmm. Well, I think part of it is that, you know, in the theology, as you well understand, we believe in creation, the fall, and in the fall, where mankind, humankind was separated from God in Christian theology, uh, therefore, uh, we took on a corruption a propensity to justify self by putting others down and also making ourselves feel better about ourselves by seeing others then less than ourselves. And that propensity, that proclivity for that kind of view is part of the fall that we're not we're not we're still made in the image of God, but it's been It's been distorted. It's distorted. And as a result of that, it's part of the human. And and Rob, here's the reality. Yes, there are, uh, in America, white supremacy has ruled over blacks for years. But uh, that's racism. But prejudice, the other side of the coin, prejudice is in all of us. You can look at the way somebody's built and decide I don't like those kind of people or they're not as smart as us or or they got a less than jobs, whether it's racism or classism, both can have a role and God's word speaks to both of those situations. So I think we're all as humans needing salvation, we all have a degree of prejudice within us that we need to be cleansed from. But in America, uh, white supremacy is that they are the city on the hill, uh, the chosen one. Somehow they've bought it and they tried to eliminate the Jews from the texts and put Europeans in the place like uh like Hitler, like me, I mean, that was part of Hitler's movement there too is that uh every that in the fallenness, everybody's still trying to rush to the top, and even if I have to step on you to get to the top, i'm going to get as high as I can that's part of the fall that is plaguing all of us, and that's where the gospel comes in because it's good news that you don't have to think you're better than somebody else, and there's nobody better than you, and we're all the same, and God loves us. And uh, there's the the liberty that comes to all of us. But in the meantime, we are like Jonathan Edwards. I went to Reformed Theological Seminary, and that's where I got my and Jonathan Edwards, he believed that, yes, we're all black and white are equal at the foot of the cross when it comes to salvation, but he stated also, but I don't. I'm not going to be in heaven with anybody black. They're not going to be with me in heaven because even in America when the black church was started, we started out in the white church and blacks had to sit in the balcony and that was called nigger heaven they made blacks sit up there they couldn't be at the altar at the same time with the rest of the congregation and there was a special time for blacks to go and that's when it was decided you know what we need to leave here and do our own because we're being mistreated and discriminated Uh, William Seymour in 1906 the Azusa Street that event took place in the middle of Jim Crowism in America where uh, he couldn't even sit in Bible schools run by whites because it was against the law and yet the greatest Pentecostal move that the world has ever known took place from William Seymour after 1906, right in California, a black man in the midst of Jim Crowism, and that's where I call the move of the supernatural. And we must have a supernatural move of God. And that's a nice segue
0: uh to the title of your book, The Good News for Racism, From Liberation to Reconciliation. I hope everybody will get it. Uh, I've read it. I'm going to reread it. I'm going to read it once, twice, and three times. If you're a pastor, if you're in religious education, if you're a denominational executive, uh, if you're an active and engaged layperson, if you are a person of faith or not, you will enjoy and be edified, certainly educated, if not inspired, by Van's book. Uh, It's an easy read. Don't don't worry about uh, setting aside six months to read a tome. You will get through this in good time and you'll be able to act on it in good time. Uh I think it's a great starting point, Van, for pastors who say, yeah, I'm burdened by all of this, I care about all of this, I'm frustrated, I'm vexed by it, I want to see our church get past it and become a salutary contributor to resolving this conflict, this uh, perennial problem in the church. Well, here's a good place to start. Get some good counsel from Van Gaten, who isn't a theorist, folks. (laughs) He's a practitioner (laughs) and he has personal experience uh, in this very thorny,
1: complicated uh, challenge. Could I just say one other last one? You know, Soren Kierkegaard makes a statement that life is lived going forward, but it's understood looking backward. And James Baldwin, uh, the great black poet, said that unless we know the truth about the past, we cannot go into a positive future. And so we look back at things because we only want the truth but it must be truth with a goal of reconciliation and i firmly i firmly i want to go on record this way to say i firmly no matter how ugly the past the love of god prevails and that we are to be people that are filled with the love of god reaching out for one another for our brothers and sisters even our enemies that the love of god takes us to reconciliation and that's my hope in the gospel a perfect episcopal benediction yes. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> thank you bishop thank you van my friend my brother yes, well, you my fellow traveler my... Uh, you've you've enriched my life uh, uh, late, i love you and going back a long time and and much love yes. to you i love you and family. your parents Oh, they loved you like a son. Yes, uh, both I love of them, them too. did. And so I thank you for this wonderful installment in our uh, series on getting to know our senior fellows. Uh, the institute is better for your presence with us, Dr. Gayton, author of *The Good News for Racism: From Liberation to Reconciliation*. Get it on Amazon. Buy it at Smile dot amazon.com. Choose as your charity, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, and you'll help us to bring voices like Van
1: Gaten's to the fore. Thank you, Van. Thank you, Rob. It's been my pleasure to be with you.